Well, go ahead and take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Psalm 124 this morning. Psalm 124, we're systematically working through the Psalms of Ascent, um, and we've made it. This is the fifth week we're here. Psalm 120 is where we started, and now we've moved to Psalm 120, 124. Go ahead and look at this psalm with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has some in his hands. It's important to have a copy of God's Word in front of you uh, so that you can see the things that I'm saying. I'm, I'm not making up. We say that regularly, but I, it's true. Um, you need to have it in front of you so that you know that the words that I'm, I'm exposing this morning are coming, coming from the text and not of my own conjuring. Psalm 124 Let me read this for us. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the followers. The snare is broken. We have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our names are pretty important to us. Think about how many times you have to sign your name, even in a day. Think about if you're buying a house and you have a mortgage. Think about how many times you have to sign your name to get a mortgage. Or think about just a simple credit card purchase at Walmart. You have to sign your name. You write an email, and at the end of the email, you you sign your name. Your name is important to you because it's where you attach it. Your name is a a valuable commodity. When I was in high school, uh, there was a man who allowed me to do some, although I was a high schooler and really bad at it, he allowed me to do some landscaping for him and just some yard work in general. I sensed he was a businessman. It was on Lake Minnetonka, and so he had this big, beautiful home. And, uh, and he was a businessman. I sensed, I, I think, that he was a man of integrity and someone who was, who was true to his word. And I was working on a particular project, and I finished, uh, but it wasn't, uh, and I told him that I was finished, but it wasn't quite up to standard, or at least his standards. And he came to inspect my work, and he wasn't satisfied, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, would you sign your name on this? Would you sign your name on this? I didn't have to answer verbally because I knew that the, the answer was, of course not. I, I wouldn't want someone to know that that was the result of my work. I wouldn't want someone to know that that was the result of my work. And, and so, um, when we get to the end of Psalm 124, we see a signature. It's almost a conclusion to the psalm. If you're reading a, a letter or an essay or something like that, uh, but because it's poetry, we don't have that luxury. But when we get to the end and we see Saul, or Psalm 124.8, where David says, our help is in the name of the Lord. It's the signature of God here. Our help is in the name of the Lord. In a very real way, when we see, when we see David write this, he's, he's simply saying our help is in God himself. There's not something else that can give us help. There's not another way that we can, we can endure in this life. But in another very real sense, we're talking about the help that God gives and the assurance we have of it. When God says, I will help my people, he is putting a signature on it. and He's saying, it is in my name that I say this very thing to you. 
It is in my name. And the results attached are, are perfect. So consider this psalm together with me. There's kind of like three parts here in this psalm. Psalm 124, as many of these psalms do have. Psalm 124, there's sort of these three, these three parts. And I'm going I'm to give you uh, three thoughts flowing from each of, each of these parts. The first is simply this. The proclamation of the people of God. The proclamation of the people of God. Secondly, the people of God as victors and not as victims. And then finally, the help that comes in the name of the Lord. And it all builds kind of to that, to that point, to verse 8, where we see this conclusion. Where we see the conclusion to Psalm 124. So let's take those in turn and, and flesh them out this morning. Psalm 124, the proclamation of the people of God. What is the proclamation of the people of God? Well, look at verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us. And so we have this picture. We have this picture of David launching into this psalm to proclaim something about who God is. And he says, he stops himself, right? Your Bible might have like a dash. It says, uh, if the Lord had not been, or if it not had been the Lord who was on our side, and then dash, let Israel now say, let Israel now say, he's saying, people of God, speak this. This is what we're going to say now. Speak this truth. And then he restarts. He said, if, the Lord, if the, it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when the people rose up against us. Why, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, probably it's a poetic device, but he does it because what he wants, uh, he wants to communicate, he wants to reiterate the importance of verbal proclamation as for, uh, regarding the work of God. What is important for the people? What is important for, for the people of God to be engaged in? And David is saying verbal proclamation. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let the people of Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us. So he's reiterating the importance of verbal proclamation of the works of God. When de someone does something incredible for you, when someone does something nice or, or kind for you, or you really believe in something, some truth that's, that's happening, you, you talk about it, right? You make it known. You have a good customer service experience, and you say, you know, I was on the phone with this company, but I was kind of on the fence with them, but, but they really treated me well, and, that, and it was good. And, and then you tell people about that. Wow, I was on the phone, and it was, it was wonderful. They really helped me out. It was a special time in my life. <laughs> Personally, you know, I'm excited about Toyotas. I'm excited about Toyotas. I talk about Toyotas because we've had four Toyotas, and outside of just like general maintenance and some general wear and tear on the older ones, Toyotas have been really reliable vehicles for me. So I talk about Toyotas, and I say, hey, you should really consider a Toyota if you're buying a vehicle. You should really consider one. It's a good thing. I think, that's a, I think it's a positive, a positive life choice for you to choose a Toyota, right? And they've been good. They've been good for Rebecca and I, and I, friends, they'd be good for you too if you're in the market. And the psalmist then is doing something very similar. He's reminding the people of God what it is that God has done and what they have because of who God is, and then that they should verbalize it. They should speak that. They should go out from the place from which they are, ascending to worship in the temple or coming back from exile or wherever they find themselves. They should then go out and verbally proclaim what God has done for them. That is something that they should, they should engage in. And the psalm even gives them the words to do that very thing. 
So we must jump down the page then to the verses six and seven to understand what it is that the proclamation should be. What should God's people be proclaiming? What are the words that should be coming out of their mouth? Look at verses six and seven. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. This is what God has done for his people. He's provided them an out uh, when they were being oppressed. The backstory is in two through five then. Back up the page. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. When they, their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then, the, then over us would have gone the raging waters. This is, this is the oppressors of Israel, of the people of God, who are, who are, again, poetic language here, who are swallowing up and their anger kindled and the flood swept us away. This torrent would have gone over them. But blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their, to their teeth. This is the psalmist, this is what David is communicating here. That the Lord is the one who delivered them from their enemies. Israel is delivered from his enemies and God protects Israel. So, immediately we see from verse 1 where he says what he says. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side... We, we understand immediately the essential nature of proclamation for the people of God. We are called to know God and to make him known. Let me say that again. We are called to know God and make him known as those who have trusted Jesus. We are called to, and everyone on the face of the earth is called to know God and to make him known. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, this is very similar to what Blaze read just a few minutes ago. Thus said the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, not let the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for the, in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God tells us not to boast in anything except in knowing and understanding him. And then time and time again in scripture, we see, we see that we are to make known God and the things that he has done. Just a couple of examples. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 89.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people, Psalm 105.1. And, and friends, the Great Commission, which we talk about regularly in this space, falls specifically into this category. If Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, if he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. If he says, if he tells us, that's a, that's a proclamation, Right? It has to happen verbally. It has to, it has to, what has God done for us? Well, he sent his son to, to die for us, for our forgiveness of sin. So, so in, order to, in order to move forward it, as a disciple, we have to speak. We have to speak the truth of, of what God has done. <clears throat> that's, what, that's a making known of what God has done on your behalf and on my behalf. The command to make disciples is a call to know God and to make him known. It's a call to know God and to make him known him know. So I frequently hear people who say that they're Christians 
say that they might sometimes proclaim who God is to people. So we're sometimes in Christian circles, we call that like sharing your faith, right? We like say, oh, I'm going to share my faith or I, I share my faith with someone. So I frequently see, sometimes I, I do that. Sometimes I do that. But ultimately, I don't want to be pushy and I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. And to say, people's spirituality, their religion, that, that's private. We're going to leave that alone. We're not reading the same Bible, if, if that's the case. When David says, let Israel now say, when he says that, when he writes that, he's saying, let the people of God make it known to everyone. Let the people of God make it known to the whole world what God has done for them. If there's any good that has come our way, if there's any success that we've found in the face of our enemies, if, there's, if we've been granted any safety and security in a harsh world, it's because of God. Why would we not make that known? When we proclaim who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus to others who don't know him, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're just like, well, I don't want anybody to feel comfortable. It, absolutely, it's going to feel uncomfortable. 100%. Again, Blaze read it a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible doesn't even addresses the objection. It is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the, the power of God. And the, let me submit this to you. It, it's the, the reason why proclaiming the truth of the gospel to someone is uncomfortable. The reason why proclaiming who God is to someone who has not believed is uncomfortable because what you're saying is, I'm taking this and I'm applying this and the truth of it is removing you straight out of the driver's seat of your life. It's moving you completely out of the place where you can't fix your problem. Where if your problem is sin, the, the only way for it to be dealt with is not just trying harder. It's not constructing a better plan. It's not doing lots of good things, but God's gracious activity in straight up giving it to you. It, is there any way that that is a comfortable message? For those who have believed, it is an uncomfortable message. Because 80, 90, 95% of the time throughout my day, I'm convinced that I can deal with everything that's going on in my life. I'm convinced in my own strength, without the help of God, that I can deal with all of these problems. But the gospel, and we apply it to our lives, says, no, you can't. Your biggest problem, the sin that separated from you, for you from God and the death that it led to, you can't deal with it. It can't be dealt with other than the gracious activity of God in Jesus Christ on our behalf. And Paul says that it's folly to those who are perishing. Those who deny the gospel, de deny the weight of the problem of sin by claiming they're all right, or would just rather temporarily be comfortable and take their chances, or just see how, how could a bloody cross take care of my problems? To them, that's foolishness. But it doesn't stop us from proclaiming. Certainly the nations that surrounded Israel thought they were ridiculous. You can't even see your God. You only have one God? The nations that surrounded Israel thought 
They were ridiculous. How can an unseen singular God give you the help that you need? But despite all of that, David urges Israel to proclaim the excellent works of their God. We are to do the same. And one realization that we must come to and is apparent in this psalm is the next point. The way that the psalm builds, right? Consider the next thing. The people of God as victors and not as victims. This TV is so helpful. Thank you. It's just all right there for me. That's great. Thank you, brother. The, <laughs> is it? That's incredible. Okay. It's a Prius. So efficient. The people of God as victors and not as victims. That's what this is building to, right? The proclamation now, what are we proclaiming? David is proclaiming that the people of God are victors and not victims. David's words here imply enemies, right? People who rise up against Israel, swallowing them up, predators. Now, if we want to be good Bible readers, we have to consider a few things here. Because our tendency is to immediately look at this text and say, yeah, I've got enemies. Yeah, my boss, my coworkers, um, the clerk at the grocery store who was a jerk to me last week. Those are my enemies, right? But that's not at all what the psalmist is saying. So just back down off that interpretation. Let's work through this together. First, consider two things here, especially related to the enemy language here. First, two things. We have to consider that David is writing about the people of God as a whole. Every single person who is part of the people of God, which is Israel here. This is not, what he's not doing is writing to individuals who make up the people of God, but to everyone who is involved or together in the people of God. And this is hard for us to think about because we live in a hyper-individualized culture, right? So immediately, immediate application, typically in scripture, if we look at it and we were reading it according to the context, reading it as the people who initially ingested this, they would have no problem making this connection, right? Okay, so God is working, but immediately we say, well, how, what is this, how does this apply to me? That's our immediate thought. But that's not at all David's writing to a big group of people, not just to one, one person. And so when David writes this, uh, we have to understand that Israel had common enemies, right? Israel has common enemies. It, if, if your neighbor has one enemy, you don't have a different enemy. They're common. We, we as a people have common enemies. So that's the first thing we have to understand. Israel had common enemies. Secondly, we have to consider the focus of the text. What is the text actually telling us and focusing on? Well, it's not focusing on our enemies. Because when we look at this, we're like, well, this is about our enemies. And then we think about, well, oh man, I got all these people are oppressing me. But that's not what the focus of the text is. The focus of the text is God and his deliverance of his people and the idea that our help is found in the name of the Lord. So two things to consider. First, Israel's common enemies. And secondly, uh, it, is the God, it is God who extends the solution to the problems that exist. So those two things, those two things drive our understanding and interpretation, how we understand this text to relate to us together as an expression of the people of God in Jamestown, North Dakota. What do we think? What do we say? How do we, how do we process Psalm 124 together? So one way that we're tempted again to, to interpret this is maybe politically. Because we see oppression, we see oppression of maybe people who uh, ascribe to Christian values or Christian morals. And so we think about it politically and we say to ourselves, um, 
Um, did you hear about so-and-so, such-and-such congressman or congresswoman, they want to do this, and this is really going to hurt Christians, or Christians are exposed, oppressed in this country, things like that. Or you're tempted to think about yourself when you read the psalm, again, the hyper-individualized angle. To those two things, don't. Don't do that because that's not, again, the thrust of the text. Why? Because those ideas are too narrow. David is writing a big, about a big thing here a much bigger thing than the political realm and much bigger thing than, than the individual realm. Those ideas are too narrow. The enemy in Psalm 124 that God delivers his people from are a threat to all of them. And so we have to ask ourselves now, what is the common enemy that we all have as the people of God? What is the common enemy that we all have as the people of God? And the answer to that is death. The common enemy that we all have is, is death. That's it. Paul calls it the final enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He says, and the final enemy to, to, be, to be destroyed is death. And you say, well, what about sin and Satan? Yes, absolutely. Those are enemies. But the result of undealt with sin is death. And Satan can't ultimately kill you. He can only deceive you to remain in your sin, which results in death. So death is the last enemy, and therefore is what the people of God share in common. Okay, all of that to say, we must consider the common enemy that we have, death, when we read this. When we look at this text, right, we say, what is it that, what is, it that is oppressing us? What is it that is threatening to swallow us up alive? What is the anger that's kindled against us? What is the flood that would have swept us away? The answer is death. That is the, that is the enemy, the common enemy that we all share. But what do we know to be true about death? It's been defeated. It's been defeated. And the second point that we're building to is that we're victors and not victims. If you read this psalm individually or politically, you will probably go the route of the victim. You will most likely make yourself into a victim. You'll focus on the oppressors and the enemies outside of the common enemy we all share then your view, your, if you view yourself as a victim and the tone of the psalm will be lost on you. You may even be angry with God or indifferent to him rather than singing his, his praises like the psalm is, is doing. If you see that the psalm is talking about the common enemy that we have, the common enemy which is death, you will reflect on the gratitude and the tone that the psalm communicates because you'll see that it's been defeated. You'll see that the common enemy, much like David's enemies here and the enemies of Israel that David writes about, you'll see that they've been defeated because of who God is and what God has done. In our case, God has defeated death. He's obliterated it through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned. Like David writes in verse 3, if God hadn't acted, we would have been swallowed alive, right? Look at verse three. Then they, would have been, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against him. Again, Paul picks up this very same language in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was victorious over death and he made us participants in that victory. The final enemy is defeated. Lesser enemies don't concern us. 
We are not victims of lesser enemies because we're not victims of death. God gives us victory. Paul says it. God gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this is building then to the final point where he, get, where he concludes, David concludes this psalm in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Or we can say all of this is possible because of who God is. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. It is the name of the Lord, is the signature of God on creation that makes him the only source for help for his people. And his signature is on all things. The second half of verse 8 shows us that, right? Who made heaven and earth. We ask, we ask, ask the question, oftentimes we look at this, we say, what is, the, what is the name of the Lord? What is the name of the Lord? What does that even mean that our help is in the name of the Lord? Is contained within the name of the Lord? You see how your Bible capitalizes all that whole word, Lord? It's all in caps there. That's to indicate that in the original text, God's name is placed there. That's the name of God. We would pronounce Yahweh. Where we call it the, if you're a language nerd, the Tetragrammaton. It's only four letters. And, and oftentimes, especially in Judaism, the name wouldn't even be spoken out loud out of reverence, and some would say fear of mispronouncing it and violating the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain. But rather, they substitute, and we do also in our Bibles, they substitute it with either Adonai, which means Lord, or Hashem, which means the name and so there's a substitute there placed in there. We do it. We do it as those who have trusted in Jesus because oftentimes in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord. And so our Bibles want to make that connection for us out of reverence, but then also showing us that it is the name of God and that Jesus is fully God. So we ask, what is the name of the Lord? But then more importantly, what does the name of the Lord convey to us? What does it convey to us? Because this is important. How, do we, how we think about verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. What, what does it convey to us? You'll remember in the beginning of Exodus when Moses encounters the burning bush. In chapter 3 of, of Exodus, God is prepared to send Moses back to his people, Israel, in, uh, in, in slavery in Egypt. And God is going to use Moses as the tool to deliver his people. And when that exchange happens, Moses says to God, he says, who is it? Who is it? Let me just read the text. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and, they, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am. That's what those four letters, those, that name Yahweh means, I am. I am who I am. Now, when I make a statement, when I make an I am statement or you make an I am statement, it requires something additional. Right? I say I'm a husband or I'm a father, I'm a Vikings fan, I'm a, you name it. Um, that, that's, 
That's, that's the idea here. But God needs no additions. God needs no additions to that statement. He says, I am who I am. I don't need anything additional to explain to you who I am. Also in that Exodus passage, God's name may be translated, I will be. And as God prepares to deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage to slavery in Egypt through Moses, he declares that he is all that is needed for his people. He's saying, I will be all that is needed for my people. And the Lord is all that his people need. He will be for them what is necessary. He will not change. His promise of deliverance is certain. And so when David writes that the name of the Lord is Israel's help in verse 8 of Psalm 124, he is saying that God will be all that is necessary for his people. He created all things. He is not dependent on anyone or anything else for his existence. He never changes and he will fulfill all his promises to his people. When he says our help is the name of the Lord, all of those things are contained there and promised to his people and will be 100% made good on. So those three things, right? The proclamation that comes out of this, but the proclamation is built on the fact that God's people are victors and not victims. And then all of this built upon the foundation that God is who he says he is. So in conclusion, if God isn't who he says he is, if God isn't who he says he is, if he isn't I am or I am who I am or I will be, then two things are true. If he isn't that, then two things are true. One, our proclamation, the first point, is pointless. Doesn't matter. If God isn't who he says he is, our proclamation is pointless. And secondly, our victory is vanquished. If God isn't who he says he is, neither, neither of those things are worth anything. Our proclamation, if God isn't who he says he is, our proclamation is pointless because it's about something that will ultimately fail. Friends, we don't proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness only to realize that he can't deliver us into marvelous light. We don't seek to make disciples of a system or the name of a church or our own names. Those names are lesser. Those names are minuscule compared to the name of God. We seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ to become those who take up a cross, a symbol of execution, and to follow him. You won't do that if you don't think or don't believe God is who he says he is. You will not do that. You will not proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light if you don't believe that he is I am, that he is, he is everything and more that he has promised to you. I heard a pastor one time by the name of Vodi Bauckham make this point. We oftentimes think, we of, the church gets this wrong pretty regularly, we oftentimes think that we need power or a platform or popularity to, to, uh, to, to advance our, our gospel witness. We oftentimes get excited when, when we hear that someone like a professional athlete or a TV personality is a Christian and we think to ourselves, wow, that person can really use their platform for kingdom advancement or kingdom purposes. We oftentimes say that. And this is, friends, this is how the world thinks though, not the way that God thinks. If God needs our names to advance his purposes in this world, if God needs our achievements or our platforms, then our proclamation is pointless. 
What are we doing proclaiming a gospel of a God who needs us? He isn't I am if that's true. Why would God need your name? Why would God need the name of Caleb Drehosh or the name of Buffalo City Church? Why would God need my name to advance him if he has a name that is above every other name? We go to Philippians 2 regularly. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If God isn't who he says he is, if God is not who he says he is, the name of Jesus isn't the name that is above every name. If God is too weak to act and the gospel is too powerless to save sinners, then why would we proclaim any of it? Secondly, if God isn't who he says he is, our victory is vanquished because God is unable to make good on his promise. The promise of forgiveness of sin, the promise of deliverance, the promise of redemption, the promise of our good, of new life. The list goes on and on. If God isn't who he says he is, that victory is vanquished. None of these things will come to pass. Because if God isn't who he says he is, then we're still held by our sin, captive to it, we're dead, and we're dying. We need God. We need God, I am, to act on our behalf. So the admonition this morning is clear. Straight out of this text. If God is who he says he is, that's awesome. If God is who he says he is, live like God is who he says he is. Simple enough. If God is who he says he is, live like God is is who he says he is. How can we do this? How does that practically, how does that actually flesh itself out? When our name becomes the most important thing to us, we sometimes buy into this notion that we need to make our name for ourselves, right? In order to have worth or to be liked or to be revered or honored, you name it. But if what David writes is true here, if what David writes in verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If our, name, if, if our help is name in, the, in the name of the Lord, all we need is found in who God is. Not in the name that we can make ourselves. The name we make for ourselves, friends, will never ever be enough. It will never ever be enough, but God is enough. My name ultimately is not important but proclaim the one whose name is above every other name. It's not the president or a politician. It's not an athlete. It's not an actor or an actress or a philanthropist. It's not a leader in your career field. It's the one who says he is who he is. It's the Lord, Jesus, God himself. People make claims all the time about who, who they are. And even the most consistent person on the face of the earth, the person who is most consistent, never lives up to the claims that they make. Maybe you talk a lot about yourself, and maybe you have a lot of claims that start with I am. And even on your best days, even on your best days, you can't really live up to your I am statements perfectly. One of our culture's mottos is, is be yourself. One of our culture's mottos is be yourselves and put your seatbelt on for this one. That's not biblical. 
We spend so much energy trying to be ourselves and cultivate that experience. Psalm 124 and really the whole Bible isn't concerned with that. It's not that you shouldn't be yourself or you should try to be inauthentic. It's that this is not even your primary concern. Your primary concern isn't caught up in, in yourself. She's just like, don't worry about that. Oftentimes, also you hear this in our culture, you hear, you are enough. We hear something like that, you are enough. Friends, let me be straightforward with you. And that statement is anti-gospel. It says, you had the power in and of yourself to deal with your sin. You had the power in and of yourself to bridge the gap between you and God. What you were created for was to worship God, to have relationship with him. And you, when you say you are enough, are saying, I don't need it. I don't need the truth of the gospel. And secondly, friends, you're borderline blaspheming. It's, it's true. If you were enough, why would you ever lean on Jesus? Why would you ever look to God for your help in times of need? Why would you even consider going outside yourself to help or for help of the sin that is carting you down the path that leads to destruction? If you are enough, you are saying the words, I am, without anything attached. Don't buy into it. Jesus says it very clearly in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that would be very literal. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The world is selling something. Don't buy it. It costs a lot and it's cheap and it will disappoint you the moment you get your hands around it. But instead, friends, proclaim the one who is always who he says he is and will always be who he says he will be. Our God is our help it is found in him. It is found in his name alone. He is on our side, like David says. Snares and predators and floods and death will prove ineffective against the one who says that he is enough. Lord Jesus, God, we praise you that you are, in fact, enough. Lord God, we recognize and, and understand that there is nothing that we could do apart from you. God, we know that the sin that so easily entangles us, uh, the sin that we're prone to, and even still plagues us, God, we understand that the only help that is found in it is in Christ Jesus. God, and we praise you this morning that, that death has been swallowed up in victory, that we will not be swallowed up by death, but that death has been swallowed up in victory because of Jesus and because of his sacrificial death his burial, his resurrection, that is the promise of our resurrection. God, may we as your people go from this place this morning and even as we participate in the elements, God, may we as, as your people proclaim the truth of who you are because we understand it is the name of the Lord that is our help and that we will not be victims to death, Lord God, but we will be victors over it. We will, be, we will participate together in that, in that victory. Lord God, and that we will proclaim that truth to everyone we come in contact with. God, we praise you for who you are. Lord, we recognize that none of this is possible. Our very next breath is impossible unless you act graciously on our behalf. Lord God, so may we recognize that this morning. God, we thank you 
that we can come together and gather and celebrate, celebrate what we will one day experience in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That there will be a day where we feast together and where sin is no longer a problem, where there will be no more tears and where our bodies will be free from pain and where death will be an afterthought. God, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.